Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, Episode 313, Laser Communications. I'm Gary Jordan. I'll be your host today. On this podcast, we bring in the experts, scientists, engineers, and astronauts, all to let you know what's going on in the world of human spaceflight and more. Deep Space has recently seen a lot of traffic. Just in the past year, we've had experts on this podcast to discuss Orion, OSIRIS-REx, Lucy, and Psyche, all spacecrafts that send data back to Earth from the Deep Space Network. This reliable network has served NASA and other countries' deep space missions for decades. And with access to space increasing and more space traffic with modern technologies, this means demand for more data. Now, the Deep Space Network's data rates are limited by the method of transmission, radio waves. So how can we improve the data rates of deep space communications and near-space communications? Lasers. We chatted recently on the podcast with Steve Horowitz about an optical or laser communications demonstration planned to be on Orion for Artemis II. This is the deep space vehicle humans will take to and from the moon. This demonstration is one of several to better understand the needs for an improved network. Laser communications over radio can pack a lot more data in a single transmission. But to make it as robust as possible for any user, you have to have a solid infrastructure on the ground, transmitters and receivers, to be able to support the demands of future deep space and near space missions. But what are those demands? That's what Dr. Jason Mitchell, Director of Advanced Communications and Navigation for NASA's SCAN program, or Space Communications and Navigation, is looking to find out. Jason describes the process for better understanding what future deep space missions will need and how to best support this future. With that, let's find out more about laser communications with Jason Mitchell. Enjoy. Jason Mitchell, thank you so much for coming on Houston Wave Podcast today. Thank you very much for the invitation. Uh, I'm excited to be here. Yeah, we uh, we got a taste of optical communications, laser communications with Steve Horowitz. Got to talk with him a couple of episodes back on O2O, and it really gave us a taste. But I think there's there's a lot more to this story here. Um, I want to start with you though, Jason, and understanding your background, what got you to where you are. We're going to be talking about uh, the space communications and navigation, and um, obvi- and then work our way from just this general overview over to optical communications, but. What brought you into this world? What, uh, what sold you on maybe the idea of space or communications, anything like that? Uh, where, did, where did it all begin for you, Jason? <laughs> well, I think maybe uh, resonates a lot with your audience. Star Wars is what brought me in uh, as a kid. Me too. Um, to the interest of space, right? <laughs> Just uh, seeing that on the, on the screen and thinking about it, uh, that got, got me motivated. Um, tried to do well in school. <laughs> was was moderately successful at that goal. Um, went to college. Uh, my 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 PhD. Uh, my graduate research was largely focused on celestial mechanics. So I was I was interested in how things move in space uh, and and numerical methods to to try and predict how those things move around in space. Uh, and ultimately, my my specific dissertation was related to spacecraft uh, attitude dynamics and control. Um, being able to predict spacecraft uh, attitude, which turns out to be kind of important if you want to do things like laser communication, because <laughs> pointing is important. Mm. Um, and then I, I, I went, uh, I did a, a, a postdoc um, 
with the Air Force uh, working on formation and flying technologies. So how to how to get spacecraft, individual spacecraft that might be clustered together to do different interesting kinds of things. Um, and that that ended up with me migrating to Goddard Space Flight Center, um, where I had uh, a lot of fun working on things like uh, high altitude GPS for the magnetospheric multiscale mission, um, which which incidentally still has I think the 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 Guinness Book World Record for highest uh, GPS uh, signal altitude received uh, and used in space. Uh, so that was super fun. Um, I I got involved in uh, another uh, sort of experiment uh, called uh, X-ray pulsar navigation. So you may be familiar with that. You may there was a, a DARPA program. Um, a while back to mm. to look at using uh, pulsars for independent navigation for GPS like navigation that could be used anywhere in the solar system, right? Because pulsars are, are visible from everywhere, whereas mm. GPS satellites are just visible <laughs> if you're if you're around the Earth. Um, and so then we we did that, uh, demonstrated that with a nicer mission. Uh, was the nicer mission was the Neutron Star Interior Composition Explorer mission that was an ISS payload. Um, and so we we did that X-ray navigation demonstration, uh, and then I sort of uh, migrated to doing other technology elements in a broader scale uh, at Goddard, and then eventually moved uh, to SCAN to do technology development for SCAN. Okay, yeah, it seems like it got progressively more related to communications, navigation, that, that sort of, uh, it was a methodical step-by-step um <laughs> part of it your career to get like that yeah. in retrospect <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it was not it was not uh, it was not entirely a random walk but um, you know something like that yeah yeah you know what i found interesting jason is you talked about you didn't do particularly well in school but what you just mentioned there each each part of your uh of your background of your career was working on some very complicated stuff i wonder just what about did you push yourself a little harder to to be able to understand some of these complicated things maybe driven by the, the you know your your fascination with star wars and wanting to to enter into a world of space and just pushing yourself but i mean you're you're talking about some complicated stuff so so how would you navigate that no pun intended, right? <laughs> but, <laughs> you see what uh, I did there. Well, so yeah, there you go. It's a good, good lead-in. Uh, <laughs> the, you know, the, it was always a challenge for me um, on the academic side to just sort of get up to speed. Uh, mm. And so, you're absolutely right. It, it was uh, really mostly about hard work, right? It was was putting in the hard work to to get that deeper understanding. And and fortunately, um, that focus actually just kind of snowballed. And so it it. It was a, um, you know, sort of a positive reinforcing habit that once I learned what what I needed to do, right? Because sometimes it's about really understanding how you need to learn. Was just being able to apply that uh, in the new situations and then focus really on getting down to the heart of of what are the basics? Because most times the basics are exactly that; they're just basics. the The rest of it is uh, sort of the dressing that you need to accomplish that basic thing, and that's where the complexities really get uh, built up. But but those are things that are you know just like building a Lego, right? You you just got a bunch of simple blocks. You just have to put them together in the right shape that you want, and and that's the real complexity, not not necessarily the basic fundamental things. Maybe you think about the basic math or fundamental physics of it. Mm. You you describe it so <clears throat> so seeming seemingly simple but i but i believe the way that you got there was exactly as you said through the hard work it was it was the dedication that got you to a point where you finally were able to understand it grasp it 
And you had to push yourself probably along the way to do a lot of these complicated things. I mean, you talked about working with pulsars. These are, um, you know, that, that's that's an interesting solution to solving navigation problems. How do you find your way uh, through the sky and, and just f- finding unique solutions and, and diving deep into a subject to better understand it? Um, you got you to gotta kind of go along with the flow there. Yeah, and it's fun. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that 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 underscores the the whole point. Uh, but at least for me, it's it's not it's not everybody's thing. But sort of that increased lifelong learning um, is sort of one of the things that drives me. I, I, I'm I'm very much interested in doing unique things, um, and, and in particular things that enable us uh, as humans to do and learn more. Right? I mean, those yeah. are um, I, I didn't I didn't fall into the the science side. For the most part, right? I, it didn't. That was not something that resonated with me. But but doing the kinds of things that I was interested in helped me enable other things. And so being able to to play that role was very satisfying for me. Very good. Yeah. You know what? Um. Your your path took you um. A, 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 like we said, interesting ways. But but where where we were talking about leading was your current role, um. In uh, in advanced communication and navigation, and um. This is within the space communication and navigation. So let's just help our listeners navigate that and understand uh, what this program is, what your role within that program is. Let's start with SCAN, Space Communication and Navigation. You touched on a little bit of this in some of the work that you've done, but as an organization, can you talk about what SCAN does? Sure. So uh, SCAN, Space Communication and Navigation Program uh, at NASA, it's located at headquarters. It's in, as you know, we're, we're organizing the mission directorates. It's within the Space Operations Mission Directorate. And and the SCAN program is responsible for making sure that uh, NASA missions can meet their objectives. So whether that objective is uh, exploring a new, a new place, um, either robotically or with humans, uh, we're, we're, we're tasked to make sure that the data that they need, um, they want to get back, comes back, comes back in the way that they want, <laughs> right? That they can actually decode and make use of right. to make those discoveries. And also um, to provide uh, the ability to make sure they know where they're going, uh, where they're at, uh, so they can determine how they're going to get there, right? So the, maybe you think about this as sort of like the navigation guidance control uh, part, right? You have to be able to navigate, find out where you're at so that you can determine where you want to go to and then guide to that point. And so that this this office or this program is responsible for making sure that missions, as they go through their design, you know, their concept formulation, all the way through design development, uh, ultimately to to launch and execution, that they're able to to get all the information they need from the program to be able to to accomplish their their mission goals. I see. Okay, so so let's take Psyche for example. That's a recent launch that we just had. It's a mission that says, "Okay, I'm a spacecraft Psyche. I want to go to this asteroid called Psyche. Uh, so I need to know how to get there, and I want to send some very valuable data from deep into space back to Earth. And that's where you guys come in, and you say, "Okay, here's here's the here's the navigation story, and here's the communication story. Am, am I characterizing that correctly?" Yeah, I mean that the that's the the that's the the high level overview, right? Because the, well, I think one of the things that sometimes uh, may be uh, glossed over or is sometimes uh, oversimplified is that uh, by and large, particularly for deep space missions, where you don't have uh, you know an autonomous navigation capability like GPS available to you, mm-hmm. the your your communication and navigation capability are tied to your 
communication link because that's actually what you're using to get the the basic observations that you're going to use to determine what your trajectory is and then ultimately where you're at right do your your orbit determination or your position determination okay yeah there's uh you know it, all these different um all these different missions have have different goals and different objectives but they all are within the infrastructure that you guys build, maintain, and manage and get feedback on. Um, everybody wants data. Everybody wants to get to where they're going. So you're sort of the the roadmap for them. You're the GPS. If I want to get to somewhere, you know, it, locally, I'm going to I'm gonna pl- pull up my phone and go to Google Maps, and I can trust that there's an infrastructure in place, right? I'm going to trust that there's GPS that's going to know where I am and know where I need to go and tell me the path to get there. It's that version, but for space. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I mean, really, if you if you maybe think about it in a, um, in a in a more general term, uh, we would maybe talk about it as an enterprise architecture to mm. be able to execute missions. Right? It's the fundamental infrastructure that you have to have. One of the fundamental infrastructure pieces that you have to have to be able to execute missions. And there's a lot that we rely on even today. We're going to talk about the deep space network. I know there's the near space network. There's different components that that are used every day for space missions that are that are up in orbit and, of course, deep into space as well. Now, your role in advanced communications, where does that distinction lie within that program? Right. Yeah. So, uh, so in uh, so the the program uh, has uh, division elements. Um, we have network operations. They're responsible for the 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 network elements and assets that actually operate to deliver these services to missions. Um, we have a, a development group that supports sort of targeted uh, updates uh, and capability additions to that operations network. And then we have a division, uh, which is my division, uh, which is Advanced Communication and Navigation Technology Division. And my job is to look across the mission portfolio for future needs. Um, so I, I work with our systems engineers uh, who work with the the missions uh, that, are, that are sort of coming through the formulation pipeline. And, and we look at what, what kinds of needs they have. And then we sort of evaluate what technologies are available, what the requirements might be. And then we sort of try to put our finger on how we would go from what we have now to what we would need to meet a particular requirement. And we would sort of call that maybe a gap, right? There would be a technology gap that we would have to identify an investment plan so that we could either develop or take an existing technology and mature it enough so that we could close that gap and then make that capability available. Well, this is going to lead very nicely into our discussion about optical, because I know that's probably one of the things you're working on most. But um, so so optical, we're going to lead to, right? This is one of those advanced things. This is one of those capabilities that a lot of um, different spacecraft and a, a lot of researchers are looking at because of its capabilities. But let's talk about the infrastructure now. So we um, we have a couple of uh, you know, we have satellites, we have uh, these capabilities, ground lines, all communication systems in place right now, communicating with spacecraft in deep space and low Earth orbit, um, all different areas uh, within space. Um, now, when we try to characterize that deep space network, near space network, how do you typically uh, try to characterize the network that you currently have? <laughs> it's it's a challenge, but yes. so we 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 draw so um, so we sort of uh, have this imaginary uh, distance choice that we talk about things that are you know two million miles away and less as sort of Earth vicinity, 
and then and then we'll we'll treat that boundary as everything outside of that is uh, we would call that deep space. Okay. And so that that gives us a little bit of wiggle room with the with the moon, right? So there's some overlap there because mm. you could you could potentially have non-DSN assets, right? Other other Earth-based assets, uh, antennas uh, supporting um, the moon, and 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 in fact, certainly other uh, other space uh, agencies uh, and and commercial entities actually uh, are are on board to support sort of the, the overall Artemis view um, about how how we'll execute the the remainder of Artemis and and beyond Artemis. But so the you know we we typically focus on the the near Earth network as being uh, those those assets that support sort of Leo, Mio, uh, Geo. And we, one, one of the things that our program also does, in addition to the Deep Space Network, um, we also uh, operate the TDRS satellite constellation, right? The tracking and data relay satellite system, mm -hmm. which is the, uh, the geosynchronous orbiting number of satellites that give you 360 degree 24 seven coverage uh, in, in the radio frequency spectrum. Uh, so, so you can get, you can get, uh, data from from anywhere you want uh, below the constellation uh, and so for example ISS is a a, a huge user of that um, during the shuttle days shuttle was a huge user of that I mean in, in fact that was sort of part of the reason for teachers to support sh shuttle right and, and those capabilities as a build out for ISS went and then for the deep space side you know we we have uh, deep space is differentiated from that in that the antennas are much larger usually right so the 34 and 70 meter antennas at the different uh, uh, locations, uh, Goldstone, Madrid, and Canberra uh, are the three primary DSN sites. And, and they, they receive their data, uh, you know, in, in whatever band is appropriate for the mission, right? I mean, this is, this is one of the things that uh, we focus on is that there's no one-stop shop solution for everybody. That's why we work with the missions to make sure that we can meet their need because they may have some particular quirk that means well, we would ordinarily do this for this kind of mission, but because you have this unique need, this unique mission need, we would we would engineer a solution for you like this. And so that's why we have this um, sort of array, no pun intended, this array of assets available <laughs> to to meet all those kinds of mission needs. I love all the puns that we're throwing in here. This is <laughs> it's actually kind of fun. Um, now, now radio frequency, right? So when you talk about a lot of the what we have now, you talked about the the different um, uh, assets that we have in place in order to support all of these different missions. I, I, am I reading this right? In that all of them use radio frequency. Right. Okay. So what are the pros and what are the cons of using RF for uh, space communications? Well. Pros uh, are certainly that it's what we've what we've used uh, up to this point, right? Uh, it's it's extremely flexible, um, it's highly available, uh, it's well understood, um, it's uh, sort of easy to implement. I mean, I think one one of the one of the best things is that uh, all of the engineering is all clear, right? There's no limited ambiguity except when you're trying to push the boundaries of the envelope, right? If you're really trying to push up to high frequencies. Um, or if you're trying to do really novel or nifty things, what what you need to do for space is all well known, and that's really attractive for uh, for space users, right? Because they don't want risk in their communication system. They they want risk in what it's going to take for them to to execute their their particular mission, right? Maybe their risk is. Uh, the particular instrument design, right? Maybe it's a novel new instrument design. They're not quite sure if it's going to work right, or maybe they won't get enough data, or you know something something like that from from their particular instrument. They don't want infrastructure items to be the the risk uh, for them to 
take on, right? And so that's the that's sort of the the, the focus there. I see. Um, now, um, what's nice about uh, the radio frequency infrastructure? You know, you talked about one of the pros is um, just the fact that we've been using it for so long, right? You talked about even we, we, you mentioned teachers during shuttle RF goes goes back even before that. Um, there's these ground stations all over the Earth that support all of these missions. So as an example, to help us to understand, let's just say, uh, you know, a there's a deep space mission and it's sending a signal and it's the it's the uh, ground station in Canberra that uh, receives that signal. But it's uh, it's uh, the team, the mission control team in like JPL that needs to receive that signal. How does it get now it goes from space to the ground station in Canberra? How does it get from Australia over to uh, California? Yeah, so that's that's where we that's where we leverage all of the existing terrestrial networking capability, right? We 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 bundle that data over the traditional backhaul that we we lease from 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 various providers that connect to all the sites, and then that data is routed back to the um, uh, deep space operations uh, center or complex. Not just because it has the acronym DSOC doesn't mean that it there we there's only so many uh, short acronyms right so we you're you're bound to have some collisions here and that that's one of them that's the collisions and and so at that routing and that again that that's located at JPL so once that data comes in from from wherever uh, whether it was uh, you know Canberra or whether it's Madrid or or Goldstone it would be routed there yeah. it would be sort of packaged uh, and then with whatever agreements um for 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 traditional terrestrial backhaul, that data would then be delivered to the appropriate operations center, whether it was a uh, a science uh, processing center or whether it was a Mr. Operations Center, uh, that's that's how that data would be delivered. Yeah, so, so this is uh, sort of setting the tone for how data is received, how data is is sent. It goes through these channels, these these well-constructed, well-thought-out channels to get from the spacecraft to the end user and everything in between managed by uh, SCAN. Now, this leads into your role, right, in advanced communications is understanding what comes next. We've had RF, we've had we've had uh, the near space network, deep space network. We've been using these assets. Let's figure out how what comes next. And the conversation that we're leading to, Jason, is lasers, is optical communication. We've had a taste of this on the podcast before, but. Um, in the broadest sense, just to help listeners to with an overview of what laser communications, what optical communications is, um, what are we looking at here? Well, so um, you know, back to the the notion of RF, right? Um, yeah. We as you as you as you proceed through the RF spectrum, right? As you as you go up in increasing frequency, we're we're all sort of very familiar with the sort of what we would call S band frequencies, right? Because that's that's roughly the gigahertz area where we're all connected with uh, Wi-Fi, uh, like right now, many of us are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> whether whether we're aware of or not, we're probably connected to some Wi-Fi thing somewhere, uh, exchanging data. Um, <laughs> and so, you to get more data, you you just proceed up the up the frequency through the spectrum, right? You go to higher and high. You go from uh, you know maybe you go from S to X band, right? Increased frequency. And if you want even more data, maybe you go from X to K or KA band or KU band. You're increasing in frequency. Now you're up into the you know tens of giga uh, tens of gigahertz uh, in terms of frequency. And if you if you really want to push RF, you can go up into the W and V bands, right? And get get even more data. But but the challenge there is that you start to have uh, difficulty with weather 
transmitting directly to Earth, right? So you start to have weather effects. And like, well, if you're going to have weather effects, why don't we just sweep all the way up, sweep out of the gigahertz range and sweep into the terahertz range? And that's where we get to where we're at now, which is the the near-infrared um, sort of 1550 nanometer wavelength. Um, we sort of generally call that as optical C-band. And that's interesting because that's the that's the terrestrial target for terrestrial, uh, sorry, I should say it differently. It's the, ter- the target of terrestrial optical networking, right? I mean, all the backhaul, we're, we're all data hungry, right? I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm a voracious data More user. More data, And yeah. so all that... Yeah, all that data on on Earth is already pumped with lasers through fibers, right? Mm. And so, so the benefit there is that we're just we're sort of just lifting the network up, right? We're we're bringing that into space, making it uh, usable in space, ruggedized for space. But instead of a fiber carrying the the medium, uh, we're doing it through free space, right? We're doing it just a free space laser communication. Now, it's much easier to do space to space links with lasers, right? Because there's no there's no atmosphere to impact the the signal, nothing to impact the light that's being transmitted. When you transmit to Earth, the the atmosphere can distort the signal. And of course, just like with the higher frequency RF, uh, if you have rain clouds and things like that, it can it can obstruct your ability to receive your data, right? It can and can block your data. So that's where lots of things come into play about uh, how you how you predict weather, how you assess where locations to receive the optical light should be. Um, and and ultimately, it's just that we're moving up into, you know, for 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 a non-technical phrase, just a faster wiggle, right? I mean, we're we're wiggling faster so we can pack more data into the wiggles. I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I uh, yeah, I'm imagining the squiggly lines, the wiggles as you're as you're uh, as Bingo. you're describing it. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um okay, so so this it sounds great, right? More more you jam more uh data into a single transmission. Um that, that I think you know, there's a lot of researchers, there's a lot of uh individuals out there that would love this capability for space missions. More data means you don't have to be so choosy. It means that during a mission you can get more real-time data versus data that uh, you have to store on board. Just um, We've talked a couple of times on this podcast on uh, Artemis 1 and Orion. There was a lot that Orion was able to transmit through the Deep Space Network for real-time data, but there was so much on board that a lot of it just had to be stored and gathered later because it couldn't all transmit through space. Uh, So this is definitely a capability that a lot of people would be interested in. Now, you said a couple of cons, yeah. though, right? So you said weather, right? So we, we talked about the ground infrastructure. We talked about what's ca- the capabilities uh, on the ground for the deep space network, near space network, and, and, of course, in orbit, some of the assets there. We talked about TDRS. So what infrastructure do we currently have in place for supporting optical? So so right now, uh, we, we have no, I wouldn't characterize it, for example, with respect to the to the existing networks that we support, deep space network uh, and the near space network, um, we I would not characterize the stations that we have now, these ground uh, ground stations we have now, as operational, even though they're operating. Right? I think it's a it's a it's a you have to be a careful about the okay. that term. So, yeah. But for the infrastructure that we have right now, uh, we have two uh, optical ground stations. Uh, one uh, at Table Mountain facility that's operated uh, by our JPL partners. Uh, and we have uh, another station uh, at uh, in Haleakala in Hawaii. Uh, and so those are sort of well-placed uh, because you point out, uh, as we mentioned, the, the weather becomes an issue. Well, if you're able to get up above the weather, 
that's actually super, <laughs> right? <laughs> because then you don't have to worry about it if you're above it. Now, Table Mountain's not quite high enough uh, to do that. You, you still have effects. And, and it also uh, turns out that uh, Table Mountain is sort of in the uh, in the flight path for LAX. And so that 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 is another set of infrastructure elements that we have to have to make sure that we're we're meeting safety requirements, right? No, you don't want to you don't want anyone to inadvertently intersect your beam. Although, from the perspective of our choice of the 15, 15 nanometers, uh, that's an I-safe range, right? That's a, again another U.S. industry telecom standard that we that we try to focus on specifically for those those safety reasons. And we're not broadcasting at high enough or transmitting at high enough power for that to be really a problem for aircraft. And so there there are infrastructure elements in place. Mm-hmm. I would characterize them as experimental because what we're really trying to understand how to do with the with the sort of the portfolio of risk reduction activities for space users we have. Uh, is to understand what it takes to get to operations. I think this is a uh, it's it's one thing to simply develop a technology, test it, and say, yep, we we met. Uh, you know, if you're familiar with the technology readiness levels, um, if you think about TRL six, where you say, okay, it's ready to it's ready to go into a mission. Um, we're we're not really done there when it comes to infusion. When you're talking about something like infrastructure. We really have to go through all, all the challenges of learning what does it take to make it operational. Sure. Uh, if you think about it uh, as a, a lab exercise, it might take 10 or 15 people to do the demonstration, uh, get the data that you want, but you probably don't want, and it might take you know six or eight hours to be able to do a short data collection run. You really don't want that, right? Because you want to be able to support multiple missions. You want to be able to turn over really quickly. <clears throat> you don't want to have to burn out operators operating long hours uh, in you know potentially isolated areas, and so because there's human impacts uh, on that operation. So this is the the way we're trying to execute this portfolio is to really understand what it's going to take from these experimental ground stations to to enable this as an operational capability. Yeah, very important distinction, right? We talked about the infrastructure and what's in place, but and this is why this is what you're doing exactly is trying to figure out okay what comes next. And of course, you don't want to gut the current infrastructure which works so well to replace it with something that you're right. We still need to figure out. We still need to understand uh, what these operations are like. And so you talked about technology demonstrations. We meant we mentioned one uh, where we talked with Steve Horowitz about O2O, and we can certainly investigate that one again. But you have these spacecraft that are loaded with optical communications as a technology demonstration to do, I think, exactly what you're setting out to do is, hey, let's just see how this works. Let's see what what we need, what the capabilities are, what the users are requesting in terms of data transmission. And we have a couple of examples already in space and, and going up soon, in fact. Uh, one of them is Psyche, right? I think Psyche was loaded with an optical um, uh, capability. Uh, we have one that's going to the station very soon, Illumina. T. Uh, we could talk about O2O. Uh, can you talk about some of these um, technology demonstrations for optical comms and what you hope to to accomplish by having several optical communications uh, technology demonstrations on several different missions in several areas of space, deep space, near space, everything in between. So what's uh, what's the plan here? Well, you, so you just you just hit the nail on the head, actually, right? It's that we have a diverse user set that we have to support and they operate everywhere mm-hmm. right they they literally they literally operate anywhere and everywhere that they could go <clears throat> and so the way we've constructed uh, and I'll, I'll i sort of use this term sort of risk burn down right our, our goal is to burn down all the risk so that a future user doesn't have to accept 
any additional risk, right? They can focus again back to the notion of you don't you don't want to take risk on a mission on your infrastructure, right? You unless you're specifically trying to do something new that you couldn't do without that. And that's sort of what we're doing here. And and the portfolio goes from low Earth orbit uh, to geo relay to uh, the sort of cislunar and lunar environment, which instantly is th- that was the feasibility piece was with the the LLCD, the lunar laser communications demonstration, way back in in 2013 uh, on the LADI mission. Right, we we demonstrated that you could get an optical link um, from the moon at uh, about 622 megabits a second, uh, and then and then DSOC pushes that out to beyond the moon. Right, that DSOC is the what are we going to do? for high rate communication, in particular in the focus of the moon to Mars objectives, right? If we if we wanna be able to really think about exploring Mars, we really have to make sure that we understand what it's gonna to take to have high rate capability. And I don't just mean high rate capability as return data. If we're gonna have humans, humans have to be connected to home, right? I mean, I think this is a, a maybe sometimes something that's, um, glossed over or not talked about or something like that yeah you absolutely need to make sure that if there's an issue uh, on on board the spacecraft with the crew and it's a medical thing you have to be able to and for example maybe they have a, a portable uh, small uh, x-ray or uh, ct scan capability that's a lot of data you got big uh, got to get back and you have to have that pipe to do it but you also want to make sure that you can send them a lot of data because you like to make sure that they remain connected to home, feel connected to home, and don't feel isolated during that long journey. And so that's that's part of the reason why we're doing this now with DSOC, is so that we can understand what the link characteristics are for that uh, for that context, for that use case, and and work through it, and then think how we're going to do that, how we're going to expand on that to support the real exploration needed for Mars. And in fact, if you think about it, if you really want to pick a landing site for Mars. You you kind of need to have a really high resolution map of the surface, uh, and if you were gonna say roll the dice and look at the entire planet to find the best place you would want to go to, well then potentially you'd have to map the entire surface. And this is one of the things where as an as an early implementation, you could potentially return substantially more data and have a substantial risk reduction to your site selection for visitation uh, than if you if that if you didn't if you had to wait right it could something it's it's pretty rare that you could get something that could move your schedule to the left right it could, it could schedule usually schedule often moves to the right right it takes longer but uh, this is something that for the deep space side could actually move things move things in right and uh, from the from the near earth perspective um, I'll, I'll mention uh, one other uh, demonstration that we did we did something called T bird which is the terabyte infrared uh, delivery payload that was on um, a small sat demonstration and and that hit 200 gigabits a second direct to earth uh, and so you know uh, it was in a sun synchronous orbit so it was a, about a five minute pass twice a day uh, from table mountain and uh, in a nighttime pass we managed to accomplish uh, almost a five terabyte transfer in just that single pass uh, and so that was a that was a critical and I, I suspect that's still a, that will be a record setting uh, downlink uh, from a space link uh, from a Leo user. That's huge. Um, yeah, you're talking about huge amounts of data. So um, just to to drill down just a bit more, when you talk about supporting users and and you and you talk about it and from from your perspective within the organization of Scan and how best to support that, what will that from from your end inform? Uh, will it inform? 
ground stations? Will it inform um, servers and and you know how much how many servers to buy to be able to handle such data or or uh, you know staffing concerns? Uh, like what from a from a practical sense in order to support operations, are you are some of the things that you are toying with in your mind to say okay what does the future look like and how can I best prepare for it? In short, yes. <laughs> All of it. <laughs> it. Yeah, it's. I mean, it really is the because because we're really shifting. Um, it's not not just a shift in frequency uh, to higher frequency, really high frequency capability. It really is a change in the way we would potentially operate. Uh, mm. Because if you can if you can get two hundred gigabits a second, or you know, or, or nearly five terabytes of data down in a single pass from a small satellite, right? Uh, I mean, the 12U satellite was th- was this demo. The the payload, the T-Bird payload itself was only about 3U in size, right? So it's it's pretty tiny. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> that sort of means, uh, uh-oh, what can I do that I couldn't do before? And what is the impact on the entire chain, right? I mean, it, it really is, and, and, I'm, and I'm, I say chain because uh, I immediately start to think about not just the things that we need to do internally, as I mentioned before, about uh, sort of how does that change the operations, what does it mean, but it also extends to supply chain, right? To to commercial availability of pieces that we would integrate together, right? The the way I see technology moving forward um, to be really successful, we have to do the things that are critical for our missions, that are mission unique. If it's not unique, then we just procure it. Right. And then if we do something that's unique, we have to make sure that we transfer it to industry so that we can build industry capability to support that um, more so going forward. Right. And then we can focus on only the unique mission needs that we have to invest in because we'll know we'll have done enough risk reduction that commercial can pick it up and provide that as a capability. And, and the exciting thing now uh, is that there's such commercial capability that it's not clear to me at this stage what what things will look like in 10 years, maybe, maybe not even what things will look like in five years, right? If we're, we're uh, I should say it differently, when we're successful with our, our risk mitigation, our risk reduction portfolio, <laughs> that will be transitioned to industry and it's, who knows what the capabilities will be uh, once we're able to do that. I mean, I'm, look, that's something I'm really looking forward to. Um, and and that that's a little bit of a wild card, right? I it it could be uh, to your point about sort of sizing servers, like maybe it's all just a cloud service at some point in ten years, and you you buy it from from whatever your 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 cloud provider is, and they say, well, you don't have to care about how your data comes and goes. This is just what you need to do for your spacecraft. Point here when you're ready to go and turn on, and we'll get the data to your to your op center. Yeah, I'm Pretty starting. Magical. Yeah, it, magical, and I'm I'm starting to get a sense of the difficulty of of trying to. Predict, I mean, what you're trying, what you're doing here, Jason, is predicting the future, right? So if you make the wrong investment, um, then of course, if you make an investment to to supply a capability that delivers data to all these end users, but then there's already commercial infrastructure in place, well, then that's a that's a that's a wrong decision, right? So you have to understand what is out there and what everybody needs, right? There might be a there might be an end user 
user that wants like terabytes of data instantly as soon as they receive it from the spacecraft. So how so do you set up a, a unique line to get it from that ground station receiver on the optical end over to the end user? Or is there a commercial infrastructure in place that maybe you can rely on and they could just purchase, you know, or or, or lease services? Um, this is this is sort of what you're going for. What from the scan perspective do we need to procure and invest in? And what is what is the total demand that may drive a whole economy that uh, may support it for us? And finding that balance. This is this is the world you live in. <laughs> right. So if if I had an infinite prognostication engine, this would all be easy. But <laughs> I only have a very finite prognostication engine. <laughs> and, and so the 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 good thing is that we have a very strong team uh, in SCAN that is thinking sort of very broadly about this. Um, you know, uh, I mentioned earlier Tedris. So just as an example of, of how we're sort of trying to work all this out uh-huh. as we separate the technology development from what what might be seen as just maturation uh, or evolution of our existing service capability, right? Um, in scan, one of the things that I mentioned earlier, I mentioned Tedris. Uh, so that's aging, right? And and that will probably uh, age out uh, before everyone would like to see it go, right? Uh, sure. And and that's just that's just a fact of life. Um, there there won't be uh, there's not there's no plans to replenish Tedris, right? So they'll just they'll fly out they'll do their useful lifetime, and then and then that will be in. To mitigate that, there's a, a, a project inside SCAN called uh, Communication Services Project, and its job is to engage commercial industry, evaluate their capabilities to provide TDRS-like services so that we could potentially have users that have relied on TDRS in the past be able to just procure services because we will be we are working with industry to mature those capabilities to reach that state. And so that's the kind of thing uh, that we're we're working through to address exactly what you asked about. Uh, you know, well, maybe you just get it from a service provider, right? right? Bringing that commercial capability up to speed so that we're actually giving them more direct requirements, right? I mean, it's it's a little bit challenging for us because we we we're sort of a challenging user. Because uh, we have unique mission requirements, often uh, again, I mentioned that specifically to meet some particular science or exploration goal. Whereas a commercial provider would typically just say, "Well, here's our here's our spec sheet. You know, this is what you're going to get." Uh, we're we're working with them to try and expand that capability, and and that's sort of just one element of that evolution. Uh, as we work also through through tech transfers, um, you know, we do uh, broad uh, broad area or broad agency announcements that engage the the commercial community to and RFIs to you know test out ideas and see what what things could come back so that we may you know write a procurement for something uh, so that we could um, address how we would infuse that procurement into executing a mission. And so it's a it's the 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 goal of scan. To make sure that we're evolving to to serve our existing users, but also evolve to meet our future user needs, which is why it's important for us to continuously engage them and get an idea on, you know, how is that horizon receding, right? Does it does it recede to a hard wall that we can't we couldn't meet because the data the data needs become so high? <clears throat> I mean, I think we're we're already seeing missions that are are targeting, you know tens of terabytes or more a day, right? Uh, and so 
at some point, we'll, we'll transition to missions that want petabytes of data. Uh, and, and we have to be prepared, at least with a plan, about how we would accomplish that. And that's sort of how we work as a team inside SCAN uh, to make that happen. That is a tough job. Um, you know, I think about, uh, as you were talking, I was thinking about just what the investment that we made, that it was made in the beginning with Tdris and with other assets to enable something like an RF network that we've seen with uh, with the Near Space Network, Deep Space Network, and how many users have been um, have been using this these assets for as long as they have to and and I would dare to say and I wonder if you're observing the same thing that it was because of those investments that drew up the demand for the services so that w now when we're in a period uh, where we're evaluating what the future looks like we could consider commercial not because that you know because what we did or by any sense was a was wasteful it was because it was necessary to drive up the demand to be where we are right now, to have this option where we can consider commercial because there is so much demand out there that there could be a viable, there could be a viable business model around space communications. And it seems to be, and perhaps that's something that can trend over time, but it's because of the investments that have been made over time um, by NASA, by other organizations to get us where we are today. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think. Uh, uh, I mean, maybe to to put a, a a broader point on. I mean, it's sort of like a field of dream scenario, right? If you if you build it, they will come. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, the the challenge is, do you have the do you have the mission requirement that says you need to build this to execute the mission, right? And and this has been the this is this is the um, the chicken and the egg challenge of of reaching for and a and attaining the future that that people or at least the missions that we see coming are are going to need to well will have to have to meet their needs right and so i think that's the that's the difficulty right the 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 finite prognostication cap capability right uh, and the 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 swiftness with which uh, commercial is moving because as you rightly point out there are business cases that close that are providing services that mimic what we have done because of that draw up, right? right. And so I, I see what we're doing with the current risk mitigation portfolio for optical right now as sort of prep for that next generation draw up of what that will mean. And and from the moon to Mars objectives targets for, for SCAN, uh, sort of being responsible for providing infrastructure for what a post Artemis future would look like, you know, you, you hear terms like industrial utilization of the lunar surface. Right. I mean, that's a uh, that's kind of a scary thing because mm. we don't really have that many assets at the moon and certainly not what you would need to support industrial utilization. Like if you if you think about what, for example, uh, what 3D printing for houses kinds of things do here. Right. You maybe maybe you want to have some position capability at the moon where you can tell where anything is to within a handful of centimeters on the moon. So that you could do appropriate control to do things like automated road building or or automated house building or shelter building. And maybe house is a wrong term to use for the moon, but some shelter, shelter building. Sure. Right. And and that's a that's a that's a heavy lift, but it's not one that is without parallel. We did it here terrestrially, 
the question becomes, and I think the the terrestrial benefit has been undeniable, right? I'm thinking specifically about GPS here, right? I think the the impact for that national investment is maybe not immeasurable, but it's a really big number, right? right. You, we we all know that if you turn it off, people get cranky. So <laughs> you 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 want to you want to keep it going, right? And 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 it's entirely possible that as we make these investments for the for the post Artemis uh, future. For, for an industrial utilization of the moon and, and by the way, a context that we would leverage to understand what we really need to do for Mars exploration. I think there's a lot of business cases that close for that to be able to, to provide services to users as that, that market would grow. I mean, we would, we would model it much like we've done with our terrestrial services, right? We would do the things that we need to do to meet our mission requirements, transition the technology and the capability to industry, look to procure more capability as we grow to the point where we would have, you know, commercially owned and operated things. And we would just be a, a, a purchaser of service, much like we lease lines for fiber to be able to do backhaul here on Earth. Mm -hmm. So that's that's a big time scale that you're thinking of, Jason. Um, you, you're thinking you have to think about the near future. What what can we expect in the next 10 years, 20 years? Um, you're thinking about Mars. You're thinking about, you said post Artemis, you know, this is, uh, this is, uh, this is a time period on decades, decades into the future. And so when you gather your team and you start performing this work, um, how do you try to balance, you know, the immediate need you talked about time scales of, you know, whatever, whatever, capability we may need you know maybe it's something we need to invest in now because it will take years to to build up that capability um so so where where are your let me let me say where are your priorities now then looking uh at, at least when we're talking here in in late 23 why well, so this is an excellent question right <clears throat> because this is the this is the challenge of the unknown future yeah, right? and you you don't <clears throat> you you sort of a there's a, a Frank Herbert quote from Dune of something about the concept of progress uh, exists to insulate us from the terrors of the future. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so something along those lines, right? But uh, you know, it, it's really um, it's really a challenge. It takes a lot of uh, focused thinking and a lot of customer engagement, right? I, I think you know we're at at heart scan as a service provider to users. <clears throat> and so we have to continuously engage our users. Now, our users actually have the really long time scale. I'm thinking specifically uh, about like uh, Artemis with its goals, the Moon to Mars uh, architecture objectives, which with its stated goals, and then the science mission directorate um, for their science goals. And the science side has the decadal surveys that drive them, right? So they're, they're looking at the, the next 10 years with a peak to the follow-on for what could be important. And so we actually have a lot of data about what the potential futures are, right? So you can't just, as you pointed out earlier, you can't just pick one, right? That's the danger of a bad investment. And then and then you're, you, you can't react, right? So you have to sort of keep your options open. Yeah. So that's why we, we look at a number of things, right? We're, we're never gonna give up RF, right? So it's always gonna be, uh, you know, yes and kind of thing. Right. And so I think the the that that thinking and the available information and a a process that we use, right, which is our customer engagement process, helps us stay sort of on track and revector. Right. So we 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 can look at the long future, uh, take a shot, 
Uh, and if it doesn't land quite where we think it's going to land based on what we're seeing in the near future, we're able to correct a little bit. And I, I think the um, I think maybe there's a an interesting parallel here if we look uh, we look back, right? I, I like historical data because historical data sort of tells us gives us at least a, a low number of cases that we can use to calibrate our forward shots, right? <clears throat> and I think if you if you go back to the, one of the core elements of our ability to do optical communication right now are these uh, superconducting nanowire single photon detectors, SNSPDs, right? Would be nice if it was an acronym and you said it fast. But these SNSPDs are at the core of how we're able to do optical comm because they can they can count individual photons, right? So that lets you be able to receive a really weak signal if you're thinking about throwing individual photons at this detector. Now, if you if you go back to the early 2000s, there was uh, originally a DARPA program that was looking at how do we do these kinds of detectors. There was sort of a, a I'll call it maybe an eight-year-ish investment. Wasn't really clear how things were going to go. SCAN became interested in this and stood up a program. And we had, uh, I think, maybe it was five or six different technologies we were looking at that we were funding for development, as you do with low low. TRL, right? Low technology readiness level technologies. You don't know what's going to be the winner. So you have to be able to fund a number of them. And, and quite frankly, at the time, the SNSPDs were the dark horse candidate. No one was really sure because what, what comes from this, right? Uh, the, the prefix of the superconducting part means they have to use a superconductor, which means that we don't have room temperature superconductors yet. So we have to cryogenically cool them to just a few Kelvin above absolute zero for them to get into a superconducting state. And so no one was really sure that that was going to be the, the winner. And of course, that's what we use now. And, and they're actually uh, available commercially for relatively uh, low cost for what they do. So I think that's, that's the point, right? Is you have to be able to have a far enough look ahead with some near-term corrections and the ability to do the low technology readiness maturation so that you can get to a down select and pick the winner based on merits, right? A performance. Yeah. Okay. That is, so this is, uh, we, you know, it's funny is we just had a conversation very recently on this podcast with, um, NIAC, NASA, um, innovative Con advanced concepts. Great program. And, yeah, exactly. And what you're talking about is a lot of the, is the, is the world that they live in. This is, uh, this is looking at several different options with, with, um, technologies in a low technology readiness level and seeing what works right and then of course at technology level ready technology ready list levels uh increase and to a certain point they go out of NIAC and they get into embedded into more uh, uh different things but um this uh this is a very important step to look at things that are conceptual because they may, as you say, have this capability into the future where they're used regularly, so regularly that they can be available commercially. A very important step to take. Jason, this has been a uh, very insightful conversation on uh, optical communications. Um, I I think there's there's a lot 
to do. And I'm very curious the, the, the steps that are going to be made as we've had this conversation now over time, because we're talking about decisions on a grand time scale here. But over time, what is the space communications infrastructure going to look like? How will we support uh, initiatives like optical? And what will that look like to, to, to navigate around things like weather and, uh, and, and with, um, you know, some of the considerations that are needed for making space missions successful. Um, this was an absolute pleasure to get to talk with you today. Before we break, I just want to make sure that we did a pretty good job of addressing a lot of the things that you wanted to mention. I know you mentioned up top, uh, you had uh, a couple of things that you wanted to make sure that we hit. I feel pretty good, but I just wanted to make sure uh, from you, did we hit everything that you wanted to hit today? Yeah, I, mean, I think the the I mean the under the underscore is just the the thing that drives these risk mitigations or this risk this this risk mitigation portfolio is more data means more discoveries and sort of at the end of the day my my sort of internal drive is to help us learn as much as we possibly can about our universe and. Being able to do these kinds of demonstrations <clears throat> and 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 acknowledging that we don't really know what the future is going to be like, <laughs> uh, making these incremental steps uh, is is really important uh, because we want to be able to leverage that technology and that technology development to derive to to drive that uh, science and exploration that knowledge gathering. That's just sort of the underscore. It's the underscore that drives uh, everything that you're doing right now, uh, and it's very, very important work. Jason, this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. Wishing you all the best, and thank you so much for sharing what you thank do you. on uh, Houston Wave of Podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Hey, thanks for sticking around. Hope you enjoyed this conversation with Jason Mitchell today. It was certainly fascinating everything that he has to do in order to think about what the future is going to look like and how to best support that future. Definitely not a job that I envy, but certainly one that I appreciate. So thanks to Dr. Uh, Jason Mitchell for all that he does and for coming on the podcast today. You can check out NASA.gov for the latest going on across the agency, but also make sure you check out SCAN, Space Communications and Navigation. We are one of many NASA podcasts across the agency. You can check us all out at nasa.gov slash podcast, and you can listen to any of our podcasts, Houston, we have a podcast, on that website, uh, and you can listen to any of those episodes in no particular order. We're on social media. If you want to talk to us, we're on Facebook, X, and Instagram, and you can use the hashtag AskNASA on your favorite platform to submit an idea or ask a question for the show. Just make sure to mention it's for us at Houston. We have a podcast. This episode was recorded on October 24th, 2023. Thanks to Will Flato, Dane Turner, Abby Graff, Jane Jennings, Dominique Crespo, Al Feinberg, and Kimberly Cashin. And of course, thanks again to Jason Mitchell for taking the time to come on the show. Give us a rating and feedback on whatever platform you're listening to us on and tell us what you think of our podcast. We'll be back next week.